All right, how are we doing this morning? We all good? Yeah, awesome. Thank you, guys. That was great. Um, okay, so this, this is, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so, so far, currently, it's, it's taken over 150 hours of research to put this together. So we've then decided we're going to cram this into four 30-minute sessions. So how many know that's not quite going to happen, right? So um, one of the things that we kind of discovered is that a lot of people actually don't really know what they believe about end times. They just think it's scary, right? So that's why we decided to call this Endgame, because, you know, got to love the Avengers. Um, and we wanted to talk about bringing the scary stuff into the light, because there's so many things in there that, are, that, that we perceive to be scary, and so we don't actually have enough knowledge about it. In fact, sometimes I have conversations, and people will say something, and I'll say to them, oh, so you believe this, this, and this, and then they go, oh, I don't know. And I'll say, well... You say you believe this about the end times, so that falls under a preterist view, and therefore that means you believe these things. And most people, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people actually don't really know what it is they believe, right? Right? Did anyone even know what I meant when I said preterist? Do you understand what the preterist view of it? No, right. Okay, so that's why we decided that one of the things we wanted to do, because a lot of people have a lot of fear around this, is that we wanted to break down their fear. So the best way for us to do that, we thought, was to hit the scary stuff. So this is how the, the series over the next four weeks is going to go. We're going to do, today I'm just going to give you an intro. I'm going to tell you the four main views and why three of them are wrong. Because a lot of you believe one of those three views that are wrong, right? Then we're going to talk about, next week, Craig's going to talk about the mark of the beast, who or what is 666, right? Because that's kind of scary for everybody, right? So, so you need to have clarity around that is so that you're not afraid. Then in week three, I'm going to talk about a few things like the rapture and you know, what the witnesses are and the thousand-year reign and all that sort of stuff. And then on the fourth week, Craig's going to talk about the victorious church because the thing that people forget is that we're coming, Jesus is coming back for a victorious church, right? So we can't hit everything. We can't break down every single part of Revelation, right? That, that's impossible to do over four weeks. So we're just going to hit the, hit the main points, and hopefully it will be enough to, to put away your fears, right? So... Just so you know, and because I realize that a lot of people listen to pastors and you assume that everything the pastor's telling you is correct, and then you don't go and do your own research, I want to tell you where, where I've gathered all this information from, so that you can, actual fact, go and do your own research and look into it, all right? Because you should never blindly trust what the person standing at front is saying to you. You need to have your relationship with God to the point that you go and research for yourself. And to be honest, most Christians are lazy and we don't. So that's when we fall into false doctrine, that's when we fall into false teaching, and we believe stuff that isn't true, right? So I would highly recommend that you read G.K. Beale's book called Revelation. It's a little academic, so if you're not academically inclined, it can be really, really heavy. So if that's the case, then I recommend you get a hold of a copy of David Campbell's book called Mystery Explained. Highly, highly recommend this book. It's, it was a great book. He, he wrote a commentary with another guy, and his wife said to him, I don't understand your commentary. It's too hard. So she said, I need you to put this in terms I understand. So he wrote Mystery Explained for his wife, but it's an amazing book. I highly recommend you get it. If you are not inclined about reading, then there are some people's uh, teachings that I recommend you go and track down. 
Um, you need to look for anything by Nathan and Gabriel Finocchio, the Finocchio brothers, absolutely amazing. David Campbell himself has done a whole lot of teaching. I recommend you go and look for that. Uh, the other person is um, Chris Palmer. Chris Palmer is a Pentecostal theologian. And for those of you who are in, in that kind of academic world, that's an anomaly. Pentecostals don't usually become theologians because we're all about the spirit and not very much about the word, right? That was a joke. <laughs> Supposed to laugh. <laughs> all right? So I highly recommend that you do your own research. Now, you will have questions, okay? When you have questions, this is what I recommend you do. Write down your questions. If at the end of the four weeks of this series we haven't answered your questions, I want you to email me. I want you to send them in, and then I can answer them for you, all right? Because what what I don't want you to do is to email me tonight because highly likely we're going to answer some of those questions for you over this next four weeks, all right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I want to apologize because today is going to be more like a lecture, and I'm really sorry about that, but I couldn't think of any other way to do this because I need to explain some things so that when the rest of the series happens, you've got a better understanding and we're not having to backtrack and explain a whole bunch of stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So so once again, I apologize for the lecture that you're about to get, and I'm going to try and make it as interesting as I can because lectures by their definition are boring, right? Okay, so does that, I'm probably all scared you off and you're probably thinking, I should have just stayed at home. (laughs) Because at least if I was watching online, I could wander off and make a cup of tea. All right, so let's do this, yeah? All right, so now there are a lot of words that we throw around when we talk about end times or when we talk about uh, revelation, right? There are words like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. There's antichrist. There's the beast. There's the dragon. There's six six six. There's the rapture. There's judgment. There is tribulation. So we throw around all these words, right? And some of them aren't even in the Book of Revelation, like antichrist and rapture. Those words do not ever appear in the Book of Revelation, no matter what version you read. So we're going to take a, like I said, we're going to remove some of the scary stuff and we're going to get to what it actually says. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now there is actually a very unique and particular blessing that comes upon people who read the book of Revelation. Now thankfully, he doesn't say you have to understand the book of Revelation to actually get this blessing. You actually just have to read it and you have to hear it. And there is a blessing that will come upon you. Some people are so afraid of the book of Revelation that they don't bother reading it at all. And in fact, churches like um, the Anglican Church actually completely remove the book of Revelation from their yearly plan of how you need to read the Bible. So that's how afraid and misunderstood people find the book of Revelation to be. Now, there are some things in there that sound really scary, and there's some things in there that are really confusing to us, and I believe there are some things in there that we won't understand until we're standing at the end of time and we look back with hindsight and can see the prophecy and how it has unfolded. But the thing that you need to remember 
is that there is actually a blessing. So I recommend that you don't hide from the book of Revelation, but that you actually incorporate it as part of your yearly plan to read the Bible. I am assuming everyone has a yearly plan to read the Bible, right? And you're going to say, yes, yes, Trim, we do. Excellent. Now, Revelation is not a handbook for end times. This is how we have traditionally, particularly in the last couple of hundred years, that is actually how we view the book of Revelation. But it is not a handbook about end times. It is actually a pastoral letter that was written to Christians that Christians through every age and every generation can actually draw how do they be faithful to God when they're living in a pagan world, when they're living in a world that is not for God. That is actually what the book of Revelation is. It is a letter similar to Galatians, similar to Ephesians, written to encourage the church about how to live out their Christianity. The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to everybody. It is supposed to be encouraging. You're supposed to read it. Oh, you are my favorite person. See, this is what happens. Craig's supposed to be here. Well, not today, but like generally he's here on Sundays, right? And he always organizes a bottle of water. And of course, he's not here. And I'm like, oh, he didn't organize my bottle of water. So, which makes me sound a little bit, um, you know, special. But anyway. So, back to our pastoral letter. The book of Revelation is supposed to encourage you about how to live your life in this world that is not following Jesus. So, despite everything that you see around you, this book of Revelation is supposed to encourage you. And if you're not being encouraged, I would, hesitate, I would, I would say that you're not actually reading the book correctly. Now, there is a, a term that we use when you're studying, academically when you're studying the Bible, called hermeneutics, right? So hermeneutics is just basically a fancy way of saying the method that we use to interpret the Bible, right? Now, when you read the Bible, the hermeneutic that we're supposed to use is that the Bible is not written to you, but it is written for you. As in, the book of Revelation is not written to Trinity Jordan in 2022, but it is written for me. You have to remember that the book of Revelation was written to people who were living in AD 30, right? They, they, they were the intended recipient of that book or of those letters, but there's things that I can glean from it for my own life. What we have to look at is, how did they read this and not get confused? Because you need to remember that. They read the book of Revelation and they didn't get scared. They didn't go, oh my gosh, John has been smoking something. What is he seeing? He's obviously been taking psychedelics because of the dragons and the beasts. They read those letters and they understood exactly what John meant about the beast and the dragon and all the other stuff that was in it. So how did they know that? Because the interpretive grid that you use to read the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's more than every book in the rest of the New Testament put together. There are less than 200 allusions to the Old Testament in all of Paul's writings. But the book of Revelation has 1.25 allusions to the Old Testament to every verse. This is very, very significant. What it says is that you cannot read and understand the book of Revelation without knowing the Old Testament. All of the symbolism has to be interpreted. When you read in there about the locusts coming, the people who read the letter, who their letter was intended for, they go, 
oh, that's referring to when Joel was talking about the locusts, and they actually understood all the references that were made. You cannot read the book of um, Revelation if you are not getting your interpretation from the Old Testament. If you happen to be getting your interpretation from the Jerusalem Post or the Baghdad Times, you are going to be in error. We are not interested in newspaper eschatology. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you are using anything else to interpret Scripture, you are wrong. You're just wrong. Like, I was trying to work out, how do I say that nice so that it doesn't hurt people's feelings? I can't. You're just, you're just wrong. I could say you're flawed, an error. But Scripture interprets itself. Now, the storyline of Revelation actually retraces that of Exodus. Christians are portrayed as having leaving the bondage of spiritual Egypt or Babylon, and they're crossing through a fearful sea where evil resides, and they're entering into a place of God's protection in the wilderness. And as they fix their eyes on the eventual goal of the eternal promised land, the plagues of Exodus are actually um, replicated in the plagues that come out over various civilizations in human history. It is impossible to understand Revelation without remembering the story of Exodus. A second storyline also comes out, which takes us right back to the beginning of human history. Revelation takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, where God's going to demonstrate that that was his original goal. That is where we were supposed to reside. So what he's doing is he's going to take us back through Revelation. He's going to restore the Garden of Eden to a better form without evil. You see, Revelation is going to take us on a journey. We go from the temple of the garden to the, temple of, to the tabernacle of Moses, to the temple of Solomon, to the new temple in Christ, and that will lead us to the eternal temple of God and the Lamb. It takes us from the rivers of Eden to the rivers of Ezekiel and to the new river of Christ and to the eternal river of the new Jerusalem. It shows us how far along the journey we've come from the sacrificial death of the Lamb while pointing us forever forward into the wonderful place of the kingdom of God where the Lamb's rule will be made manifest. The focus of revelation that John received from God is how is, this whole point is how do we as a church, how do we as a people conduct ourselves in the midst of an ungodly world? You see, what the kingdom of God says is in complete contradiction to what the world says. So what happens is the book of Revelation is these things are going to happen. How are you going to align your life? Are you going to align your life with what the world says you should be doing? Or are you going to align your life with what God says you should be living? And that is what the book of Revelation is about. Are you still with me? Does that make sense? We're all good? All right. Now, over the course of history, there have been four main schools of thought about how to interpret the book of Revelation. So we're just going to very briefly look at those, all right? The first one is the preterist view. Now, preterist is just a fancy academic way of saying past, right? So according to the preterist view, everything in the book of Revelation happened prior to AD 70. That was when Jerusalem was actually destroyed by the Romans. So they believe that the whole book of Revelation is a complete prophetic warning about this event, the problem is, is that this view doesn't quite work because the book of Revelation wasn't written until later, until AD 90. So it can't be a book about a prophecies coming to pass. The thing you need to remember is that the book is completely irrelevant then to anyone who wasn't alive in the first century. So if that was the case, it would never have been included in the canon of scripture. So that is why we don't hold with the preterist view. 
The second one is what you call a historist view. It's similar to, a, um, uh, to the preterist view, but according to this, what it does is it takes Revelation and it breaks it into seven sections, following the seven letters that are found in chapters two and three of Revelation, right? So it says that each one of these, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, unfold in each section of um, what they've broken up into the seven sections of what we are now existing. Revelation describes literal, they believe that Revelation describes literal historical events in which take place through the history of the Western European church. The biggest problem with this is it actually has no relevance to Christians outside of the Western church, nor would it have had any relevance to the people for whom it was written, because it implies that this is only for in the future. The last century we have actually seen a greater worldwide expansion of the church in unprecedented numbers and an unprecedented rate, which has actually now left the Western church as the minority and the Eastern church has grown greater than the Western church. Unsurprisingly, to be honest, most people, I don't know anyone who actually follows this view anymore because, like I said, it only made sense for the Western church and has no relevance to anyone living in the East. The third view is a futurist view, otherwise known as dispensationalist. The understanding takes the whole book, apart from chapters two and three, and they say that it refers to events happening at the very end of history. Dispensationalist futurism kind of came about, a lot of people would have, you probably don't even know it, but you, if you read um, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series, they became a powerful force in North American Christianity. That is dispensationalism. Like the historist view, it interprets the visions literally and chronologically as referring to events in history, but from a different perspective. The key for dispensationalists is the significance of the restoration of national Israel to an ancient land. There have always been Jews in Palestine. The establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 gave this a powerful um, uplift in people believing it and popularity of this view. The restoration of Israel is understood to take place prior to the events described in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Following this, Christ secretly returns to earth and the earth is raptured into heaven. There is a seven-year tribulation on the earth described, what they believe is described in chapters 6 to 19, in which the reign of the Antichrist begins and the state of Israel is persecuted. As the nations gather together to make war against Jerusalem, Christ returns a second time and defeats them. He then establishes a literal thousand-year reign on earth, which they believe is described in chapter 20. Those entering the millennium are Jews converted during the tribulation, plus a small number of Gentiles. They live long lives, perhaps surviving the entire duration of the millennium. Raptured believers in immortal bodies, meanwhile, inhabit the new Jerusalem, which hovers over the earth. The temple is rebuilt, and the priestly and sacrificial system reinstated as a means of worshiping God. However, believers somehow, unbelievers somehow reappear and eventually rise in rebellion against Christ. They are gathered together by Satan at the end of the thousand-year reign. Christ defeats these demonic forces a second time and begins his eternal heavenly reign. This view is an outgrowth of dispensational theology, which teaches that God has two covenant peoples, Jews and Christians. God sent Jesus to establish, this is what they believe, right? God sent Jesus to establish a literal earthly kingdom. When Jesus was unexpectedly rejected and crucified, God had to revert to a plan B, which was the church. But the church is actually only an afterthought in God's plan. God must complete his original purpose, and he cannot deal with two covenant peoples at one time. 
Hence, he must take believers out of the world in order to go back to his original intention of installing Christ as the earthly king in Jerusalem. Only at the end time will the two peoples be reunited. Dispensationalism actually originated in a charismatic vision that a young woman had by the name of Margaret MacDonald in Scotland in 1830 when she saw the secret return of Christ. This was taken up by John Nelson Darby, who was a gifted Bible teacher who was so obsessed with the restoration of the state of Israel, of the political state of Israel, that it helped him quite significantly. You see, he incorporated this as the basis of his theology as it enabled him to show how God could have two covenant peoples and deal with each one separately. Darby followed, developed his ideas and created a series of prophetic conferences in England and Canada in the years following. What you need to understand about this is that prior to this, to 1830, this had never ever been a Bible interpretation that any biblical scholar for the eight, for, since, since they started with Paul all the way through, no one else believed that. No one else had that thought. The early church fathers didn't believe that. This was not, this was not something that they believed. This is a novelty based on a vision. There are many problems with this particular interpretation of Revelation. There are so many, but I'm only going to go through a couple, right? And this is important because, unfortunately, this is what a lot of people believe. Firstly, the Bible nowhere teaches a seven-year tribulation. Nowhere does the Bible teach a seven-year tribulation. In fact, the word tribulation in the New Testament actually consistently refers to the entire period of time from Pentecost to Christ's return. So when Jesus ascended and Peter gets up and he, and he does his big spiel about, you know, quoting out of um, the book of Joel, that's the beginning of the tribulation and it doesn't end until Jesus comes back. So far, we've been spanning 2,000 years. There is no seven-year tribulation. The idea of the seven-year tribulation has actually come from a twisted interpretation of a passage in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Now, no one would have gotten the idea of a seven-year tribulation if you just read this passage. Unless someone came to you and said, hey, I'm going to read you a passage, and it's talking about the seven-year tribulation, that's why people suddenly thought that this was real. Does that make sense? So we're going to have a really quick look. Normally, to be honest, this will probably take four Sundays to preach through properly, so we're just going to hit the highlights, all right? So Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be a flood, until the end of the war of desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many in one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate until even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. That's kind of a heavy passage, right? 
So Daniel prophesied a period of time specified as 70 weeks, commencing with a command to restore and build Jerusalem. In ancient Hebrew, just so you know, weeks, weeks refers to a unit of seven. Okay, So it can mean either seven days, it can mean seven weeks, or it can mean seven years. In this case, it refers to 70 sets of seven years. Daniel, got, oh sweet, I was making sure that was up there. I thought this would be more helpful than if I just tried to explain it. Daniel further identifies the beginning of this time period um, at the end of the 70-year period of judgment that Israel prophesied, had prophesied by Jeremiah. Daniel 9.2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. This time period is actually identified as the Sabbath rest of the land, and it is ended by the decree of Cyrus to build God a house in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles in 36, 21 to 23. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of, of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, who is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is actually the starting point of Daniel's 70 weeks. Prophetic numbers in the Bible are always symbolic. All right, this is important. There is no exception to this rule. Prophetic numbers are always symbolic. The purpose of the 490 weeks or 70 by times seven years is stated as being able to provide forgiveness. That was the whole point of this. 70 weeks are determined for your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring about everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In other words, this is actually talking about the year of Jubilee. I'm assuming you guys know what the year of Jubilee is. The year of Jubilee, in case you didn't know, was when all debt was forgiven, right? Or if you owed money, if you owed somebody anything, Everything was forgiven in the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happens to coincide with the birth, uh, with the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, the year of Jubilee is marked by the forgiveness of sins in Christ. In other words, it is actually not a literal 490 years, but it is a symbolic number referring to the coming time of forgiveness in Christ. Attaining the ultimate forgiveness is an escalated Jubilee. It means it was talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was also, it was followed by the destruction completely of Jerusalem, which was prophesied by Jesus. In Matthew 24, he says, Then the Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, and that shall not be thrown down. The 70th week, the Messiah will be cut off. In verse 26, it said, that he will be cut off. The Messiah will die. Then the prince of the people who, is, who shall come will destroy the city. The people are the Romans and the prince is Titus, who was commander of the Roman armies at the time, and Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Following his death, the Messiah will make a covenant with many in verse 27, and he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. This refers to the fact that Jesus has come and there's now a new covenant. 
The old sacrifices that happen in the Old Testament of sacrificing lambs and animals ceased at the um, death and resurrection of Jesus. The temple was destroyed to help facilitate that. The temple had to be destroyed. This takes up the first half of the 70th week. The second half of the week starts with in the last days, the destruction of the desolator and the devil in verse 27. You might be sitting here thinking a little bit confused, and I apologize for the fact that I'm kind of having to race through this. But Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has sacrificed himself. He has been raised. He's gone. He's ascended up into heaven. And Peter stands up, and he says, talking about Joel's prophecy, about the outpouring of the Spirit for the events of the last day. Joel prophesied in the last days. In fact, it says in Acts 2.17, And it shall come to pass in the last days says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and I will and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever cause in the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, at that point, the second half of that 70th week, we have the last days. We are living in the last days. We have been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost, and we are still living in the last days until Jesus returns. The problem we have and how it got twisted with the dispensationalism is that they interpret this to be a literal 490 years. They interpret this passage to be literal and not symbolic. The problem you have with that is that the dates don't work for them. Like, if Cyrus was the one who made the command, Jesus' death and resurrection falls in the wrong place to, to fulfill their literal time. So then they moved it. They said, okay, maybe it was when other taxis came and said, oh, well, we're going to build the wall instead. And so, but again, the dates just don't work. So to be honest, most dispensationalists will gloss over it and not refer to it. But the biggest issue is that having strictly defined... The, this is being literal. They have a literal seven years that falls at the very end of time. They have this problem because they hit the 69th week where they say Jesus has died. And then what? We have to wait so far 2,000 years before they start their 70th week. Nowhere in the passage in Daniel, nowhere in the passages in Jeremiah actually say that there is a gap. You cannot have a gap if the Bible hasn't said there's a gap. This Daniel 70 weeks does not work. They say that the great, they, they define it partly out of the scripture of Revelation 7.14, which says, and I said to him, sir, you know, uh, sir, you know, and he, so he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The present church age began at Pentecost is still currently going is the great tribulation. It is not a seven year window. We are in the great tribulation. The Great Tribulation is identified with the church age. This is confirmed in other passages throughout Revelation. There are four other occurrences of the word tribulation that refer to the present church age that we're living in. You find those in chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus himself also said in John 16:33, as does Luke in Acts 14:22. 21 out of 23 times that Paul talks about, the river, uh, talks about tribulation, he's clearly talking about this present age. The tribulation is here. The New Testament connects the idea of tribulation with the suffering of our present time. 
The great tribulation is the church age. It is not coming. It is not in events to come. We are living in those days now. You have to remember, the church age began with Jesus' ascension, and it will stop at his triumphant return. Apologize for that being really heavy. If you want the notes, I can send them to you. Secondly, Revelation nowhere mentions or assumes anything to do with the restoration of the political nation of Israel. In fact, from the very beginning, it identifies the church composed of Jews and Greeks alike as the new Israel, which inherits the promises given under Moses to the old national Israel. One of the biggest issues that I have with the whole um, dispensationists is that they are actually looking to bring back the political state of Israel, and they think that they're going to be able to bring back in all the sacrifices and all the offerings, which then meant that Jesus wasn't enough. That is the concern. Jesus might have been enough for Gentiles, but he's not enough for the Jews. It's actually heresy. The third thing is that... um, Sorry, I just lost my place. (laughs) The third thing is that Revelation does not contain any reference to the rapture of the church. Nowhere in the book of Revelation does it talk about the church being raptured. Now, I'm going to cover this in week three, but I just want to say one thing. The first time Jesus came, he came as a lamb. When Jesus returns, he's coming as a lion. Lions don't slink in. Lions don't hide Lions don't sneak about. When a lion turns up, he roars. Do you really think Jesus is not going to come in and claim his land, claim his place? I don't think so. The futurist view, the dispensationist view, claims that everything has to be taken literally, that everything in the book of Revelation is literal. That means we're going to start to see some really strange science fiction type things happening. We're going to see dragons. We're going to see beasts rising out of the sea. It it makes absolutely no sense. You have to remember that if that was the case, the people who John had written that book to, had written those letters to, would would not have kept the information for us. They would have gone, John's on some weird trip. They would have discarded it completely. It makes the church look like a laughing stock when we start talking about there are going to be beasts that are going to rise. And, if you, and, then, and then you have those people who go, oh, well, well, that part's symbolic. You can't suddenly switch. That's bad eschatology. That's bad interpretation, bad hermeneutics. Either the whole thing is literal or the whole thing is symbolic. You can't suddenly change your mind. That's not how interpretation of the Bible works. One of the things that I find incredibly frustrating is you have these dispensationalists and they get up and they go, I remember, they get up and they say things and, and they make these prophecies And then they're wrong. And they never apologize for being wrong. And then everybody buys their book that they put out 20 years later because it's a new prophecy and they've interpreted differently. The fourth view is the idealist view. And to be honest, none of the three views that we talked about previously have any satisfactory solution to interpreting and understanding Revelation. But the idealist view is the one that we believe does so. It interprets Revelation symbolically in the light of the Old Testament references. There is only one return of Christ, visible to all. No secret rapture, only one end to history. Revelation portrays the church on a journey out of Egypt and proceeding through the wilderness under God's spiritual protection. And through, although we are subject to earthly attacks, it will culminate in the church's entry into the promised land of a new Jerusalem. 
Revelation portrays these events. Uh, Revelation also portrays events immediately prior to the Lord's return, but this is actually a really small portion of the book. If you understand Revelation, it is powerfully applicable to the lives of Christians for every generation, from the first to the last, not just to the ones at the end. The end times were publicly announced on the day of Pentecost as having arrived. The last days, as um, Peter was quoting Joel, in the last days I pour out my spirit. And Peter stood up and he said, this is it. We are in the last days. This is the beginning of the last days. It's all throughout the New Testament. 1 John says, children, this is the last hour. In Hebrews, it starts with, um, in these last times. James wrote, in these last days. It is all throughout there. We need to start looking at time the way that the Bible looks at time. The Bible looks at time not chronologically like we do with our human understanding, but it looks at time and it says, a day to God is like a thousand years to man. See, Jesus arrived and he kicked off the kingdom of God and we have been and initiated the last days which we have been living in ever since. Daniel talks about what's going to happen in the last days and he says, I got this vision and it's for the last days, but it's sealed up until the last days. John comes along and he, gets, he has the book of Revelation and he starts saying, he quotes Daniel and he says, what Daniel said is sealed up has now been revealed and is now happening. So the last days started in the first century and is still occurring. People will say, oh, well, you know, this is going to happen in the last days. Yeah, that's right. And the last days have been happening for 2,000 years because Christians for generations have been facing persecution, have been facing restrictions, and Craig's going to talk a lot more about that next week. There are some particular events that are going to happen immediately prior to the return of the Lord. As I said, they are a really small section of, of Revelation. And there are three sets of seven judgments. You've got the trumpets, the bowls, and the seals, and they are, broadly speaking, are actually um, replicating the plagues of Egypt, uh, the plagues of Exodus. When you get to the sixth and seventh one is when you actually have just before the return of Christ. See, the ones, the, the judgments one through to five have been happening throughout the whole of this church age to various different um, countries, to various different people, but it happens through the whole thing. Revelation 5, Christ ascends to the right hand of God, and he is there presented with a sealed book. And it's the book that Daniel saw. And Daniel sees the Son of Man, which is Christ, going into the Ancient of Days, which is the God the Father. And John sees the same thing, but he see, un, sees Jesus unsealing Daniel's book. And as soon as the book is unsealed, at the ascension of Christ, to sit at the right hand of the Father 2,000 years ago, it started a whole cascade of judgments that started in AD 30 that we are still experiencing through to this day. These judgments represent two things. It's like this. The whole coronavirus thing. A lot of people have asked, is this God? Is God causing this? Is it the devil? Is the devil causing this? What is God trying to do with this? The biblical perspective of this is, no, it did not come from God. No sickness, disease, or sin ever comes from God. Is it from the devil? Not completely, because if it was, then it just pictures God as being powerless and running around after the devil trying to clean up his mess. What it is, is God has just taken his hand. Because remember, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So God takes his hand off so that we can see and deal with the consequences of our own sin. So that we can see and deal with the consequences of the evil that we are responsible for as a, as, as a people, as a mankind, right? So he takes his hand off. And he does that for two reasons. And he only does it for a moment. It might feel like so far three years, but he does it for a moment. And the reason why he does that for two reasons. 
First of all, it calls a complacent and apathetic church back to its first love because we have been complacent and we have been apathetic. Secondly, it shakes the people out of the world who are completely secure and confident in the medical system and our science and they believe that they are smart enough that they don't need God. So you know what? It shakes them. Coronavirus has shaken up that medical world, has shaken up the scientists a little bit because they can't stop it and they haven't been able to and they haven't been able to slow its progress. Now the reason why God does this is because he is very merciful. He is. He's actually merciful. It's the, he's doing it because he is merciful. He is saying to his people, I am trying to get your attention. I want you to repent and come back to your first love. I want you to repent and come to me. You know why he's doing this? Because he's trying to help us avoid something worse later on. That's why all the judgments are based on the plagues of Egypt. If you read through, you'll see it. I don't actually have time to go into how each one aligns. That'll be a whole other story that we'll do another time. You see, God is actually trying to get mankind's attention. He wants mankind to return to him. If you only remember three things from today, this is what I want you to remember. Firstly, that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Secondly, Revelation is a pastoral letter written to seven churches. If your interpretation of the book of Revelation isn't going to make sense to them, then it's wrong. It's just, just, just stop. It's wrong. The third thing is that God is loving and merciful, and you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. He is loving and he is merciful. I remember when I first got saved um, a little while ago now, 30-something years ago now, and I hadn't been saved for very long. We had this end-time preacher come in. Now I realize he was a dispensationalist. And he comes in and he starts telling everyone, uh, for those of you who are my age or old, you'll probably remember, about bank cards had just come out. And it was a bank card and it had a big B on it, but there were three colors making up the big B. And he said that that was 666. And that the bank card was the mark of the beast. He then also went on to say that uh, the Russian guy Gorbachev, because he had a birthmark on his face, was actually the dragon with the, the, uh, the beast with the fatal wound. He, he went around the world preaching this sort of stuff. He's never apologized. He's never gone on wrong. And that's the biggest issue I have with dispensationalism. Do not interpret the book of Revelation with newspaper eschatology. Do not look at the internet and interpret the book of Revelation by what you see on the internet. Do not read the newspaper headlines and go, that's what God is saying in the book of Revelation. Just stop. You're scaring yourself and you're scaring other people. The book of Revelation isn't to scare you so that you decide you're going to build yourself a bunker to protect you and your family. The book of Revelation was to encourage you to go out into the world and fulfill the Great Commission, which is to tell everybody about Jesus. Amen? All right, let's get to our feet. We're going to pray. I apologize for the lecture style. I hope, I know there was a lot of information. Like I said, write down some stuff. I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been, and I was trying to race, and I apologize for that. But hopefully at the end of the four weeks, if I have, we haven't answered your questions, email us. I, I mean that. Email us. I do not want our church to be afraid. 
I want our church to be bold. I want our church to be knowledgeable. I want our church to be out in the front lines doing the Great Commission. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, that you are going to bless our time together. God, that you're going to, your spirit's going to testify the truth to each person, Father. Those who may not have believed, those who didn't know what to believe, or those who maybe have believed something that wasn't quite right, Father. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just testify to them. And Lord, that as they ponder these things over this next week, God, that your spirit would speak clearly to them. Lord, that they would have a sense of peace. And Lord, that if they do have questions, Father, that they would go and research quality, confident people who are qualified to speak on these matters. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't seek out, Father, just some random preacher, Father, or read some random books, but God, that you would just give them discernment to know what they need to read. I pray, God, that we're going to walk away from this series encouraged. We're going to walk away from this series no longer bound in fear. And God, that you give us a burning desire to see your kingdom extended. Lord, that we carry the hope of the world. Lord, that we are the light set on the hill, God, and that we will embody that and speak to our community. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right. I think we all need a drink after that, right? All right. Have a great week and we will see you next week.